So today is our last Sunday in the book of Luke. We have had many other great and challenging sermons from many other places, yet Luke has been our primary place of focus this year. It's been enjoyable to hear the word brought to us from people inside the congregation as well as people outside of our congregation. And today we'll take a closer look at Jesus and those two men crucified with him. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, I thank you for your word that is alive and active. I thank you for your word and uh, the challenges it brings, the encouragement it brings, and that we have a narrative that we can look to, uh, to model our lives after, and to be more importantly reminded of you and how you see us and your love for us. And I just pray that uh, we would be present to you and that uh, we'd be present to each other and be ready to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So I don't give um, our sermons <laughs> at all. Everybody knows this. If I go a good 10 to 15 minutes, we're doing good. And hopefully I've, I've said what needs to be said in that time. So looking at Luke 23, 33 through 43, I will read the passage. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing, and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, Today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Over the years, I probably, like many of you, have read this account of Jesus and the two criminals several times. It is so familiar. <laughs> Reading it multiple times this week, being in conversation with my husband and others, reflecting on the words of authors who have written about this, and sitting with it has uh, culminated into this place of intrigue. Like, what, what really was going on there? And even this morning, we're saying that sometimes it can even be hard to talk or preach on something that is so familiar, but I did find myself being very, very intrigued by this, this account of Jesus and these two men. This week, I was able to see these verses in a new way and wonder what it would look like to live into what I had discovered as I was researching and reading and studying and praying. So what takes place before this conversation on the cross? A lot. Let's do a recap. Last week, we heard an excellent word from Pastor Melissa on the Last Supper. After that, Jesus and the disciples go to the Mount of Olives. He tells the disciples to pray. He's in anguish as he's praying, so much so, so that his sweat is like great drops of blood. Can you imagine being so distressed, your body, that you would sweat something that's like blood? 
that's, that's, that's hard to think of and hard to, hard to imagine, you know, truthfully. The, the disciples, meanwhile, have fallen asleep, which I'm sure on many levels was hard for Jesus. I mean, that was his crew, his people, his guys, and probably some women too. That was his support team. The ones who will do this work when he is gone and they are asleep. Then a crowd, not just one or two people, with Judas leading them, come to arrest him. He is identified with the intimate act of a kiss. And this is just the beginning of days that probably felt long, exhausting, and painful. We read that he heals a man's ear that same moment, which has been cut off. We know that Peter disowns him not once, but how many times? Three times, after saying he would never do that. Those guarding Jesus mock him, beat him, and blindfold him, telling him, prophesy, who hit you? He's now before the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Jesus is beaten and bloodied. He's been insulted and assaulted. And they ask him to tell them if he is the Messiah. And then his response, they didn't like too much. So now he's being asked if he's the son of God, because really, how dare he say he is the son of God? And his answer seals his fate. Luke twenty-two seventy-one. Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his lips. Can you imagine, like those of us that are a little bit more sarcastic than others, can you imagine the sarcasm and the, the rudeness and the meanness and the disdain that these folks had for him? That you're in this place of being beaten and taken advantage of in a lot of different ways, and it's like, who, who hit you? You're the Messiah, prove it, prove it, prove it. In chapter 23, he's led off to Pilate who finds no basis for a charge against him. Yet the chief priests and the crowd are insisting he is trouble. He stirs up the people all over Judea with his teaching, they say. Pilate now calls in Herod, realizing Jesus is under Herod's jurisdiction. Herod questions, has questions for him. Jesus remains silent. Those around are accusing him of all kinds of things, dressing him in an elegant robe, which is mockery, and again, mocking him and deriding him. Pilate and Herod, through all this, have become friends, which is very disturbing that something like this will unite two enemies into friendship. At this point, we know that Herod wants to release Jesus. He hasn't found any basis for this. But the crowd wants Barabbas, an insurrectionist and a murderer, released instead. Now, insurrection didn't hold much meaning for me. It's a word that was used, obviously, in this story until last year. So to think that instead of Jesus, this man of peace, being released, they want somebody who is an insurrectionist, someone causing chaos and murder and hate and spreading lies, they want him instead of Jesus. Having been through what we went through last year, it's like, whoa, okay, this is, this is a big deal that they would want that over this man of peace. So this part of the narrative has new meaning for me and maybe for you too. And now the crowd is yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Luke 23, 25 says, he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Their will. Jesus is now being led to the place called the Skull with Simon of Cyrene carrying his cross, the prophecy of Isaiah 53 fulfilled. 
He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took on our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our, for my transgressions. He was crushed for our, my iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. This is what he did for us, all of us. People are watching, women are mourning and wailing. Rulers are sneering at him, guards are mocking him and dividing up his clothes, which of course we know is a complete violation of him as a person. I didn't have this added, but I do wanna add this, that when I was uh, a mentor at a home for teenagers, we reminded the teenagers that this, is, this was, a, this was a, a, a sexual violation of him, that he would be there exposed as a person. That, that was a violation of his body. He is naked, crucified, on display, and now in conversation with two criminals. And what do we know about these criminals? We don't know much. According to tradition, we know that the criminal to the left was named Gestus. The one to the right was Dismas. We don't know their exact crime. We do know that Rome reserved crucifixion for the most extreme political crimes. So they could have been revolutionaries or freedom fighters. We do know that the first criminal mentioned hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. So he wanted an inclusive package here. One commentary said that this person joins Rome and the, and, and the Jerusalem elite in deriding him. He, like the leaders, is challenging Jesus and is aligned with him only in the hope of being saved from this death. Author Debbie, Debbie Thomas writes this about Gestas. It isn't hard to distance myself from this voice. Indeed, Christian tradition makes it too easy. We call Gestus the bad or the unrepentant thief. But if I'm honest, I have to confess that I know Gestus's voice rather well. I know what it's like to mock what I don't understand. I know what it's like to mask my vulnerability with contempt. Gestus's voice is the voice of bitterness, gnarled and dried out. It's the voice that speaks when hope dies and our hearts harden, making it impossible for new life to take seed and grow. We've been there, most of us. We've looked to our Messiah to behave in ways we recognize, only to have him appall us with his strangeness. We've asked him to enact particular kinds of salvation on our behalf and receive silence in return. Like us, as we've faced disillusionment in our anger, We've turned on Jesus. You're not the God I thought you were. You must be no God at all. 
I understand what Debbie Thomas writes here. So maybe I'm a little more like Gustus than I want to admit. The other day, a friend and I went to coffee. The friend is in the room. <laughs> um, and I don't think she'll mind. <laughs> At least she has to put up with it now. <laughs> uh, we caught up on parenting, holiday plans, and travel, and work. Then the conversation veered towards the other ever-present realities. We acknowledged the disillusionment, the anger. We look at the world, we look at our broken systems, our broken bodies, and it's tempting to say, you're not the God I thought you were. You must be no God at all. It's tempting. We, like this criminal, can get stuck in the here and the now, and, view, and our view may even be distorted. It's not even accurate at times. It's what we know, what we often have limited our hope to, because it's not a real hope, it's our hope to. This criminal cannot see that Jesus is God's instrument of salvation, that Jesus is indeed innocent, and that the suffering righteous one will be delivered not from, but through death, and that he will continue to exercise his role as savior. That's what he doesn't see. And I know it was probably, they probably had some hours up there too, so he was not able to get to that point. He wanted this quick solution of, get us out of here, okay, you have the power. He missed that. Turning our attention to Dismas, he rebukes Gestas by saying, don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Debbie Thomas states this about Dismas, the second voice in the story belongs to Dismas, the thief on the right. He too struggles with disillusionment. His dream too has been nailed to a cross. But unlike Gestas, who refuses to surrender his dream, Dismas allows his to die. He admits that the kingdom he was striving for was an illusion. So he turns to Jesus and asks the only thing left to ask, remember me when you are in your kingdom. He came to the end. He knew that whatever he had lived for wasn't the answer. He knew that he was nailed on a cross next to the one that could invite him into something more. Dismas, in those final hours of life, chooses Jesus. Whatever was before this moment, he lets go of. Perhaps a vision of a better life, perhaps a dream, perhaps another way, perhaps the reality of life on the margins. He recognizes a savior, and he longs to be remembered to be with him. So he lets all that go. He lets it go. Then there's Jesus, literally, in the middle, making room for the tensions that exist. And to Desmond's response in love with, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. We see the immediacy of salvation. It's immediate. My husband and I were talking about these verses, because I was like, honey, I don't know, it's so familiar, I don't know. But then I told him, I said, I do see hope. So I do see hope in this, this, this exchange with Desmus and Jesus. You know, sometimes you can get, we were talking about this this morning, uh, me and Jimmy, that sometimes with narratives, you can get stuck, it's like, everybody's heard it, everybody's <laughs> heard these stories, and, and um, you know, it's just sometimes hard to preach on it. But there is a lot here for us, and what came out of it really was hope for me as I was preparing. Hope, because in this moment, when physical pain is so present and death is so close, Dismas speaks of a place that he knows exists. Hope because he knew this man had the answer that he had been seeking. 
Hope because even when we could look back, when he could look back at his life and perhaps his sin and mistakes, that someone, the someone, would welcome him. Hope that spoke to the deepest love he would ever know. My husband agreed. <laughs> He's like, yep, <laughs> that's there. Then he said, then this is what my husband said, there were no prerequisites for this man. He came as he was. Jesus accepted that. Then my husband stated, it's really what the church needs to be. And I was like, yep. <laughs> yeah, it is. You walk in the door, I see you, I love you, I accept you, and I'm hoping you're doing the same for me, just as I am, just as you are. And it's not the first time we see Jesus loving people, accepting them in this way, welcoming them as they are. Jesus with Matthew, the tax collector. Jesus with Nicodemus. Jesus with a man with leprosy. Jesus with the woman caught in adultery. Jesus with Peter. Jesus with Mary and Martha. Loving them, and of course there's tons of accounts of this. Loving them and also having more in store for them. Loving and accepting them first and without or sorry, and throughout their transformation. He didn't say clean up first and then join us. He said, I see you, I love you, I've died for you. Come, come be a part of things with me. Dismas desired to be with Jesus. Jesus said yes to him. As I was writing this, 2 Peter 3, 9 came to mind. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What he gave to Dismas, he gives to us. He doesn't want us to perish. He wants everyone, everyone, to come to repentance. He desires for us to be in paradise with him. Paradise, a place of uninhibited, sorry, communion with God, paradise, his kingdom, which is also here, now, within, and among us. So what does this account mean to you? Does it stir anything in you, something in you? Are you like me, who was angry at everyone who jeered and mocked him, or stood by and did nothing, only to be reminded that you were part of the everyone who needed saving? I had that moment, I was so ticked, you guys. <laughs> I was like, how could they? Wasn't sucking somebody intervene? No, and I'm a part of that. His grace has been shown to me though, right? Shown to you. Or perhaps it hits you differently. I think Dismas in that moment might have realized he was loved. So there was confidence in making the request. Do you know today that you are loved? Do you know that? I was 19 years old when I really realized how much God loved me. And I remember it, Glenn Kaiser, had given a sermon at Jesus People, and I walked away, and a friend was like, how was community gathering? And I was like, um, um, and all of a sudden just let this flood, this reality of God's love just swept over me. I am loved, you are loved. That is, a, that is an astounding and amazing gift. Do you realize that today? That you are loved? That he has a place for you? Like, we don't need Christmas gifts, we got that. I mean, you can give us something little maybe, but we, <laughs> you know we'll, we'll all receive if we were given something. But that's the ultimate gift, right? This love that we sometimes lose track of is so big, is so available, and it is also so personal. He loves you, but he loves me. 
He loves all of us, but he loves me. He loves all of, this, all of us here, but he loves you individually. Like, what? What? So maybe you're there struggling with that. That the love poured out on Dismas is also poured out on us. That's a wonderful reality. Romans 5.5 5 says, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So there's that reminder there. And Romans 10.13 tells us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's love. Where does the story of hope land with you? Debbie Thomas again states, he's not the God we thought he was, but he's a God who remembers us. A God whose kingdom is a fragrant, life-giving garden we can entrust ourselves to. That is the God that he is. Today with me, paradise. Amen.